Good evening. How are we doing tonight? Good. Small crowd. It's that, that new weather change and COVID going around and flu going around. So those that are here in person, I'm glad to have you here. Those that are here online, make comments and Eric will get them to me somehow. Uh, so let's begin this evening with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give praise and thanksgiving to you for this day, that you've helped us through any hardships that we have faced and helped us to avoid those hardships that you knew that we couldn't face. Be with us this evening as we open up the scriptures, as we open up the catechism, as we open up the sacrament of baptism, that sacrament of initiation that you gave as a commissioning to the apostles to go and baptize all the nations. Be with us this, this evening. Help us to grow in our faith and grow in our love of you. We ask all these things in your Son's name, for he lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, yes, uh, last week uh, Kirk was here. I heard he did a great job. I'm glad he could kind of pinch hit for me. He's going to be here a couple times um, more than I've got planned for him. Pretty much when I'm not here, it'll either be Kirk um, or Paul Sens, who's helping out in the confirmation class. Uh, Paul is one of our new parishioners, moved here in June uh, with his family um, and his wife's brother's family. Um, so, so that Sens is in the Dobies, they moved here. Uh, Paul works for and writes for Ignatius Press. Um, so it's kind of nice that we can kind of have someone that works nationally um, helping to teach here as well. Uh, so last week, um, if I'm not incorrect, um, Kirk was talking about a general overview of the sacraments, right? He was talking to us about why we have them, where they come from, what uh, their, their purpose is. So what's one thing that you took from last week's class? This is, of course, the question and answer period. What's that one thing that you took from last week's class? You're like, ah, I never knew that about sacraments. Every week. We'll get there. We'll get there. Sooner, slower. We'll get there. Did you have something, Adam? So close. So last week we talked about the general overview of the sacraments, having the seven sacraments. Um, did Kirk go into when these seven sacraments were actually codified into seven what year that happened? 1050, in the year 1050. So for the first 1,000 years of the church, there weren't specifically seven sacraments. There were a lot of things called sacramentals um, that, that were kind of like fringe-type sacraments, like going and having your house blessed with, with water or um, going and doing different things like that that we now call sacramentals, which are good things to do that help us in our, in our lives of seeking to be holy. But the sacraments themselves um, really came and were codified in the year 1050. All seven of the sacraments, of course, being lived out and being given to us by Christ in the scriptures. We have baptism. Christ gave us through his own baptism in the Jordan, um, where he goes up to the river and John's like, <laughs> I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. He's like, no, we got this. You're baptizing me. And the baptism that he received is not the same baptism that you and I receive. The baptism that John gave was different than the baptism that we receive as Catholics and Christians today. And in fact, for the baptism to be valid, there are two things that are needed. So for every sacrament, there are things that are called matter and things that are called form. The matter of the sacrament of baptism, water. Doesn't have to be holy water, doesn't have to be blessed water, can be any water. 
In, in fact, in the past, in extreme, extreme, extreme circumstances, I don't recommend doing this, but in extreme circumstances, spittle has actually been used to baptize. Not the norm, not recommended, but technically can be used. But so the, the matter of baptism is you use water. The form of baptism is there's a very specific set of words that must be said for a, va- for a valid baptism. When we talk about specifically the mass, when we talk about confirmation, ordination, uh, marriage, and baptism, there's a specific formula that must be said in a specific way. I know that's not gotten, no, I was kidding. Um, but it, that, those specific words are, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you have water and you have the formula, the Trinitarian formula, with the words, I baptize you, that is a valid baptism. What's the trouble that we get into then sometimes is that kids don't realize that words actually have meanings. Um, I know working out at the Catholic summer camp and um, being around hellraisers sometimes that kids like to baptize each other in the lake, a.k.a. we want to dunk each other. I'm baptizing you. No, 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 no. Don't joke about that because it could actually, if you say the words and have an actual intention behind it, there could be some validity to that. So don't do that because technically any person in the extreme danger of death any person can validly baptize. Now, notice what I didn't say. You don't have to be baptized yourself. You don't have to believe that baptism even works. What you have to believe to validly baptize is that what this person understands in baptism is present, and therefore I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a valid baptism. And so we have more that goes into the ritual because that's... What we do as Catholics, we take the simple and make things a little more complicated sometimes. And so we have this whole ritual that goes along with baptism. And what's interesting is when we look at even the ritual book, rite of baptism for children, there is not an actual rite of baptism for adults. Did you know that? Why is that? Because they're supposed to be baptized as children. Now, we run into some hiccups when we look at the sacraments and we look at canon law. There's a lot of crossover that goes between them. When we look at baptism, who can be baptized? Anyone that has not already been baptized. We do not believe in rebaptism. There's no such thing. Once baptized, always baptized. Um, a lot of churches will have, well, w- when you come back to the faith, if you leave the church, you can be rebaptized. We don't rebaptize. That's what we have the sacrament of reconciliation for. That many times what they do with the rebaptism is you're recommitting yourself to God, you're turning away from your life of sin. That's part of the sacrament of reconciliation. We'll get into that in a couple weeks. But with baptism, there's an indelible mark for the first time in our lives placed on our souls. You are claimed for Christ. And in fact, in the liturgy, when I have the parents and godparents come forward and I ask them first, what name do you give to your child? What names are we supposed to give to our children at baptism? Supposed to be a Christian name. I cannot tell you how many names that I've gotten. It's like, 
spell that for me again? Or pronounce that for me because what you just said and what I'm reading here, do not make those. How does that equal? Okay, yeah, sometimes that works. We're called to have Christian names. Why? Because when we are taking on baptism, we are taking on the mantle of Christ. We are taking on the mantle of the saints that came before us. We're called to live that life of saintness and holiness. Now, yes, the reality is we have new saints that are instituted throughout time. So as new saints become saints, we have a flock of John Pauls that are baptized. We have a flock of Teresas that are baptized. We have a flock of Magdalas that are baptized. Why? Because when they became canonized, these are the names that are kind of used. I guarantee you, in Oklahoma, in the next 25 years, we will have a lot of Stanleys or Francis's, because Francis Stanley Rother. Why? Because we want to name our children after the models of faith. Not after a river in Egypt, not after this really cool thing that I saw online where they just took like the beginning of this name and the beginning of this name and smashed them together and it made a third name. They were called to truly have purpose in our names because names have meaning. When the early church, before the Jews, Abraham Moses' time, went to God, they did not know his name. When he says, God, who am I supposed to tell Pharaoh that you are? What does God say? Because I am who am, Jehovah Yahweh. Different translations. I am who am. Why is that important? Because names have significance. One of my least favorite pictures, this one of two, my least favorite pictures of me as a, as a child was in, it was either kindergarten or first grade, we had this play. And I had to play the troll, Rumpelstiltskin. You know the story? You say his name three times and, ah, how do you know this? I had to play Rumpelstiltskin. And we find in that story of Rumpelstiltskin that if you can't say his name, you have no power or authority over him, right? So names were important outside of the church, but also inside of the church, words, numbers, names have meaning. When we look, when we talked about numerology before, we talked about the numbers of 3, 1, 7, uh, 12, 10, 40, 77. These are numbers that we hear all the time through Scripture that they helped to give significance and importance. The same thing with names. So one of my favorite Gospels that I've talked about a couple times it happens twice a year. The next one's coming up on December 24th. So if you're coming to the Vigil Mass, whenever we have that, get ready. Because it's going to be the genealogy of Jesus. Son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. Who begot so-and-so, who begot so-and-so. Who is the mother of so-and-so? Who... All of those names in there to the faithful of that community bore significance. When we look at our ancestry, we look at our history of who we are as individuals, that whole 23andMe thing that's really big out there now, Ancestry.com, why? Because we want to know where we came from. We want to know whose people we are. Now, the irony is we're all God's people. And at our baptisms, we were claimed for Christ. 
But we want to know, okay, what side of the family did I come from? What ancestry do I have? Am I Germanic? Am I Islamic? Am I French? Am I Hispanic? Am I Irish? We want to know what those roots were because we want to go get back to those roots. I can't tell you how amazing it was for me in my third year as a priest to go to the town that my great, 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 great uncle has a church named after him in and celebrate mass there. Small town on the ring of Kerry called Kyre Savine has a church, the Memorial Church of the Holy, Memorial Church of Daniel O'Connell of the Holy Cross. I got to go there and celebrate mass at this altar erected at a place where one of my ancestors was. I felt, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing in the world. Outside of like celebrating mass at the tomb of John the 23rd, which I got to do a couple years later, or my first year as a priest getting to celebrate mass where Pope St. John Paul II celebrated his first mass, just amazing. It's one of those, we get to connect with those things. So when we're given our names, our names have importance. That's why the first question that happens in the sacrament of baptism is what name do you give to your child? And normally it's Lucas or Adriana or Wyatt or Kinsley. Those are just the last four that I've had. Also cheat sheets. If you, if you see that I've got these in the books, that's because I write down names because if you haven't met a priest that uh, remembers everything, we don't. And there's many times where it's like, I will know your name until I have to say it in public. It's like, <clears throat> I even had that mistake with Katie this last week, and I was talking to her sister, Kim, and she comes down and said, now don't you tell Amy, I mean Katie, that my homily was 30 minutes on Saturday night, because it was 30 minutes on Saturday night. But sometimes we fall into those traps, but that's why you'll always see that the priest will always have the names in here. The next question, after we want to know the name of the person to be baptized, is what do you ask of God's church? We have named our child. The most important thing that we can do as parents is to have our children baptized. So baptism. And there's, there's also multiple forms of this. Some of them have English on one side, Spanish on the other. This one has different sections of one child, many child. So I've got to skip through here. You have asked to have your child baptized. In doing so, you are accepting the responsibility of training them in the practice of the faith. It will be your duty to bring them up to keep God's commandments, as Christ taught us, by loving God and our neighbor. As mom and dad... Godmother and Godfather, those are meant to be taken seriously. The reason that I wanted to have this class, not just this one on baptism, but these classes at all, specifically at the same time that your kids and grandkids and nieces and nephews are in class, is because of this paragraph right here. That I want you to take that responsibility on to truly train your children in the faith but you can't give what you don't have. How do you train your children to keep God's commandments if A, you don't know what they are, and B, the model that you have in your household is not to follow them? Now, I've, I've talked a little bit about, in my house growing up, I was confused with the commandments because my dad grew up as a Baptist, 
and we always had the Ten Commandments on the wall right next to our kitchen table. And I always sat across from them, and I memorized them in order because I have a weird mind that I just randomly memorized numbers and names and facts that mean absolutely nothing. Unfortunately, the ones that we had up there are the Protestant numbering, not the Catholic numbering. So when we got to seminary and had to go through and list the Ten Commandments, like, Danny, how do you get this wrong every single time? That's what I grew up with. Well, you grew up with the wrong numbering. In fact, I had a um, former parishioner call me last week because I'd mentioned this at the class that I had on this last year there. She said, you brought that up. The school that our kids are going to, they learned the non-Catholic numbering. I said, no, 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 not in this house. Here's the right order. If number four is not honor your father and your mother, you've got the wrong order. Because the struggle is, as a priest, the time that we encounter the commandments more than any time is in the confessional. What I've learned as a priest is nobody goes to confession the same. Everyone goes differently. I didn't know that (laughs) on the other side. I thought everybody learned the same way I did. Everybody goes in and says, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Um, It's been so long since I've been to confession. Here's my sins. Some people go in and just sit there and they're like, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. So I've learned sometimes you have to kind of poke and prod. How long has it been since you've been to confession? Awesome. What sins do you want to ask for God's forgiveness for today? So sometimes I will walk people through that. Why? Because I don't want you to feel awkward in the sacraments. But that's because I've learned that over the last few years. But I bring that up because sometimes, and I learned this in our confession course, people will come to confession. We are called to confess our sins in number and in kind. So what have I done Roughly, how many times have I done it? So some people will come in and say, I've sinned against the first commandment three times, uh, the third commandment five times, the fifth commandment uh, twice, um, the seventh commandment uh, probably 35 times, and the eighth commandment three times. The one that I caught in that one was the fifth commandment three times. Because the numbering differs, specifically with number five and number six. One ordering, five you shall not kill. The other ordering, six, you shall not kill. The other one, five, committed adultery. The other one is six. So have you had sex outside of marriage three times or have you murdered three people? I need to know (laughs) the difference. It makes a difference in your penance and how we try to give you some counseling. You have to know what you're talking about. I, as a priest, cannot help you in giving counsel of turning away from sin if I don't know what your sins are. So when Jesus gave that commission, go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he also gave them, and we'll talk about this when we get to the sacrament of reconciliation, he commissioned them and said, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained. And that's where we get the sacrament of reconciliation. But in this, we are asking to have our children baptized. You're you're accepting the responsibility of training them in the practice of the faith. What is the easiest way to train your children in the practice of the faith? Go to Mass. Even when it's inconvenient. Go to Mass. Go to Mass. Go to Mass. And then... Talk to your kids about Mass. What'd you learn today? 
What father say in his homily? Maybe you've got the little, little, it's like, hey, did you see Jesus here today? He can talk about a little bit about this, a little bit about that. But what are we hearing the readings today? What did Father talk about that you didn't talk about? Read the readings on the way to Mass. If you have husband and wife in the car and the one that's not driving doesn't get car sick when they're reading, read the readings on the way to Mass out loud. That helps us grow too. Now, I can't read or do anything when I'm in a car outside of driving or sleeping. If I do, I'm going to get nauseous and probably throw up. Don't do it. But that's when there's still a cheat. There's actually apps out there that have the daily Mass readings. You can just hit play. Jesus is literally just trying to say, oh, you have an excuse? I have an answer for that. No more excuses. But we're going to continue to make them because we're human and that's just what we do. But train them in the practice of the faith. It will be your duty, not your prerogative, not your, when it's convenient, it will be your duty to, to bring them up to keep God's commandments as taught as Christ taught us, by loving God and our neighbor. If your children are baptized, you say, I do to this, and then you don't bring them up in the faith and they stray from the church, that's partially your sin. I'm not saying that to accuse, I'm not saying that to dictate, but that's how serious this promise is. Now, you can go to confession for that. We can amend that. We can continue to pray. That's what we're called to do. But it's important for us to remember it is our first responsibility as mom and dad, godparents, to raise these children in the faith. That's why I make sure we have the children's collection, although I, fit, I swear I'm being mobbed by midgets. I, I'm waiting for an ankle biter to come. It's like, oh, but it is so beautiful to see so many kids here. Even if they aren't paying attention, even if they're crying bloody murder, I don't care, get them to mass. Because at some point, those seeds are planted. The second that mom or dad takes a step back and gives in, the floodgates open and every excuse comes in. Oh, I don't feel good this week. Well, I've got homework. Well, I wanna go to my friend's house. Well, there's a movie that's out. Well, there's a party. Well, there's, well, there's, and then mom and dad don't go, and then kids don't go, and we see how that plays out. That we must ourselves, as parents, be steadfast in the faith. But also, not just bringing them to the faith, living it out. Teaching them in, the, in God's commandments, by loving God and loving neighbor. How you treat your spouse, if you're married, your kids see it. How you treat your own parents, if they're still around, your kids see it. I remember my uncle, who I'm named after and who is my godfather, was the rebellious one, we'll put it nicely that way. And the curse that my aunts and uncles always put on him was, we hope and pray that one of your kids turns out just like you. The baby of the family, oh my gosh, carbon copy, just as rebellious. We learn from those people we are around more often than not. Bring the kids to church, bring the kids to class, that's two hours out of the week. 
if we don't pray with them, if we don't talk to them about God, they're going to hear everything else. It started at a young age. Uh, one of the things that I've talked about um, a few times is I'm the chaplain of a domestic church circle, which I'm hoping eventually to bring here to have a domestic church circle or a couple of them here. Um, I, we meet um, right now every third Sunday from 4 to 7 or 4 to 8, I can't remember the time. I think it's 4 to 7 and for 7 to 8 is cocktail hour when we have them um, in the city at one of their houses. And we talk about how their personal prayer is going, how the couple is praying together, and how the family is praying together for that month. So what skills have you learned as a family to pray? Well, we pray before meals. Awesome. That's an easy thing to bring. If you have no prayer in your house right now, start the kids praying before meals. The majority of us grew up with that same prayer growing up. If you haven't learned it, let me know. I'll print you off. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. We're asking God to bless us for the gifts that he has already given to us that we're now about to eat and receive again. So he's going to doubly bless us and we're giving thanks to God for doubly blessing us. How great would that be to teach that to all of our kids? And then to pray at restaurants and do so unabashedly. Hey guys, before we eat, let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. If you want to hold hands, hold hands. If you don't, that's fine. Everyone's kind of different in that. But it's always awesome when I go to a restaurant and I see families that are praying together and I see the kids get into it more than the parents do sometimes. The, the little ones, we can learn so much about the life of faith from them. It is so beautiful. If you teach the kids some of the basic prayers of the church, it is so beautiful. Turn your radio on 100.7, our Catholic radio station, if you're in the local area um, or if you're in the Clinton between... Clinton and almost Foss, 98.3. Um, eventually, we're going to hopefully have it as a, as a wider one here. Three o'clock every day. Turn it on the radio. The Divine Mercy Chapel that is sung on there. Kids from infancy on. I've seen this happen in multiple families. We'll begin like, Mom, it's three. Turn it on the radio. I, I want to sing that prayer. Hey, Mom, it's three. Hey, Dad, it's three. Because you're sitting in line to pick them up from school anyways. You've got to drive home from school around that time anyways. That's why it's on at 3. That plus it's the hour of um, prayer. But at 3 o'clock every day, praying the Divine Mercy Chapel, hearing how we are called to pray together. Pray the rosary as a family. If you don't know how to pray the rosary, ask for help. I can help you. Brothers and sisters can help you. If, if that's too much, teach your kids the Our Father, the perfect prayer. Father, I don't know how to pray. Do you know how to talk? Yeah, do you know how to pray? Just use those words and, and give them to God. And so after we are given all of this in this one short paragraph, do you clearly understand what you are undertaking? We do. Do you? We do. You do now. Are you ready, godparents, to help these parents in their duty as Christian mothers and fathers? And again, what's the duty? The duty is to bring them up to keep God's commandment as taught by Christ to love God and love neighbor. So godparents, it's not the pre-Vatican II understanding of if mom and dad die, you take them and you become mom and dad. That's not what it is. To be a godparent in the church is to teach the kids the faith. 
Remember the day of their baptism. Write them a card. Does anybody remember the day they were baptized? I mean, not actually remember the actual date, but does anybody know the actual date they were baptized? Most of us don't. Growing up at St. Andrews, the first probably eight years I was there, every month we'd always celebrate birthdays and anniversaries, which I realized I guess we used to do here, and I just forget it, and I apologize. It wasn't trying to abolish it. I just have a horrible memory. But we used to do birthdays and anniversaries. And so he changed it from birthdays and anniversaries to baptismal anniversaries. What month were you baptized? And it's like, uh, huh? I'd go and actually ask mom and, hey, mom, dad, do you have my cup of my baptism rocket? It's in there somewhere. I've got to figure this out because I can't stand up if I don't know it's that month. And I want to stand up because I'm a little kid and the prayer. July 27th, 25th. Some, sometime 25th, 27th, I can't remember exactly, um, of July in 1985. Then a month of me being born. And in fact, it, it recommends that when you have a child, if you are pregnant, you plan on getting pregnant, when should we have our children baptized? It's recommended within the first few weeks of life. A lot of that comes from a lot of the pre-Vatican idea of the fear of what happens to kids if they aren't baptized and they die. There was a big fear there for a long time. We've changed our understanding a little bit since then, but it still says in there it's highly recommended to have them baptized within the first few weeks of life. Now, parents, if you haven't had your kids baptized, there's plenty of outs in the sense of we still have time. When is it too late to have your kids baptized? After they die. That's it. That, that, that's the only disqualifier. You must be alive to receive the sacraments. So if you are kicking and screaming and you are breathing and huffing and puffing, get your butt to church, get the sacraments. And so... With baptism, though, there's a certain age that things change and rules become more difficult. It's called the age of reason. Now, what was funny when, is when I was talking to the office staff and some of uh, the other people that I was talking to a couple weeks ago about the age of reason, I said, what is the age of reason? They said, eh, 16 or 17. I said, no, per the church, the age of reason is seven. Kids can't tell their hand from their butt at seven. I don't disagree, but we can tell right from wrong, supposedly, normally around the age of seven. So before the age of seven, if you're baptized, go through things like normal. You get baptized, you go to class. But once you hit that magical number of seven and after, that's when the child goes into RCIA or as some churches say, RCIC, Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults or Children. So if you have a child that hasn't been baptized or over the age of seven, mom and dad get to go to class for RCIC with the kids because the kids have reached the age of reason because when they are baptized per canon law, and not everybody recognizes this in every diet, every country I think is different for some reason on this, if you are baptized over the age of seven, you must receive all of the sacraments of initiation. Sacraments of initiation being baptism, Eucharist, confirmation. So if you have a child that is over the age of seven that is going to be baptized, 
They are also going to receive their first communion, and they're going to be confirmed at the same mass. What's interesting, if we look at that and say, Father, that, that just seems really weird because our understanding in the United States of confirmation has changed and wavered, and we're even working on that again this year, moving it from ninth grade up to sixth grade. But the original order of the sacraments was baptism and then confirmation and then Eucharist. In fact, there's um, in the Eastern Church, they still follow that order that, that they receive them all at the same time and infants receive the Eucharist because they receive with a little spoon the body and blood of Christ from infancy on. Like, huh. And then when the kids come up for communion in the Eastern Church or even in the Western Church, if they've already received First Communion and they can't receive, it's traditional that the priest or deacon will stick his pinky in the chalice, put the pinky in the child's mouth. To receive the blood of Christ. Seems kind of, in COVID world, we're like, ooh, no germs. But that was something that we used to do all the time, or your parents and grandparents used to do. When you have gum aches, what do you do? Whiskey, right? Now it's out of practice, but I want to let you guys know about some of the traditions that have kind of gone through. So mom and dad know they're supposed to teach the Ten Commandments, love God, love neighbor, Godparents are supposed to help with this. And then, after they agree, we say to the child, the Christian community welcomes you with great joy. That's why for me as a priest, I have never understood the idea of having a private baptism. Because it breaks away from the whole idea of baptism. We're not being baptized into a family. It's not just a celebration of life for that one child. You're being baptized into the community of faith. It is meant for the whole community to rejoice at this birth in Christ. Because when we are baptized, we die to sin and rise to newness of life. And we are marked at this moment I claim you for Christ, our Savior, by the sign of his cross. At our baptisms, that's the first time that we receive the sign of the cross. And then mom and dad sign them as well. Now, what's interesting with this is people don't realize that what mom and dad and God, God mom and God dad are doing at this moment, they are blessing the child. Mom and dad are blessing the child with the sign of the cross at that moment, aren't they? Is it ever appropriate for anyone but a priest or a deacon to bless your children? I, I formed it that way because it's a trick question. Yes. Mom and dad, you are supposed to bless your children. Bless them when you're praying with them at bed at night. Bless them when they go off to college. Bless them when they go on a road trip. Bless them when you send them off to school instead of, I love you, honey. Bless you. And not like, bless your heart, <laughs> but offering that blessing that a mother and father are called to give. That tradition of blessing from mother and father to children is nothing new. It didn't even start with Jesus. We look back at the lineage from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
And it's the blessing of the Father bestowed upon the Son that gives him his inheritance. That mother and father are blessing son and daughter, and they are inheriting the kingdom of Christ. The same kingdom that they inherited because of the blessing of their fathers and their fathers and their fathers from the Son. Does that make sense? So if anybody ever tells you, you cannot bless your kids, I say hogwash. Bless your kids every day. At Mass, that's different, but you know what I'm talking about. And so we mark them with a sign of faith. Then we go through Mass, if, if the child is baptized during Mass, the same way. One of the things that I traditionally do when we have baptisms during Mass, because not everybody goes to the Easter Vigil, which if you've never been to the Easter Vigil, it is the most beautiful Mass of the year. It's the longest Mass of the year, but it's the most beautiful Mass of the year. Has anybody been to the Easter Vigil before? I get to play with fire? You get to play with fire? Your kids get to play with fire? I have had four people catch their hair on fire in my six years of priest. Four people. I've had two lectors fall asleep waiting for them to do the readings and catch the ground on fire. 100% worth it. 100% worth it. Because one of the beautiful things that we do in the Catholic Church that a lot of our non-Catholic Christian brothers and sisters don't do, we do ritual and we do it well. At that Mass, when we start outside and we start in absolute darkness at twilight, we start the fire. From that fire, we're actually supposed to light the charcoals that we use for Mass. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. We play that by ear. And then from that fire, we light that candle back there, Easter candle. The deacon, if we had a deacon, me because we don't have a deacon, carries that candle and says, the light of Christ, thanks be to God, three different times. And as I come forward with that candle, the servers, if I properly prepared them, which this last year I was horrible at, they then go and light the candles of the people that are here. And so as we enter into the church in absolute darkness, the light of Christ enters in and spreads throughout the world, the world of the church at that moment. And so by candlelight, by Christ's light, we are all holding in our hands the light that was started at baptism, the light that was started at that Easter vigil. And that same candle is lit every single moment of the year sands one day. Do you know how that candle continues to be lit? Through that candle right there. The sanctuary lamp. That that's when the sanctuary lamp is lit. Traditionally, you're supposed to not ever let that candle go out and use that same flame to light the next candle and the next candle and the next candle and the next candle. And then even bigger traditionally, you're supposed to use that candle than any time you have a funeral or a baptism to light that candle. We've gotten lazy sometimes in traditions. I totally forget sometimes because I'm in the, oh no, like I did for daily mass today. If anybody was there for daily mass today, I came out and it's like, huh, I gotta go back. Light, bow, light. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we forget, we make do, 
And nobody really notices until you make a big deal about it. But that light of Christ that comes into the world when it is the darkest, we receive at our baptisms. We receive the light of Christ. And in fact, there's no pomp and circumstance. If you notice, when Father goes and lights the candle and hands it to the godparent, he just says, receive the light of Christ. Because that light of Christ speaks for itself. That light of Christ can never be hidden, should never be hidden under a bushel basket, as it says in Scripture. But it should be that guiding light as a lighthouse on the hill, guiding us along the path. That's how a lighthouse works. Did you know that? If you've ever been on one of the coasts and it's like, oh my gosh, those things are so bright. What are they doing? They're trying to keep you on course. That it's a beacon as the light of Christ is in our lives. That conscience that keeps us on the straight and narrow. But I always try and make sure, because not everybody goes to the Easter Vigil, every single time that I do a baptism, whether I should or not, it's another story, I do the blessing and invocation of God over the baptismal water. Because it gives us the history of what we're doing and why water makes a difference. Father, you give us grace through this sacramental sign, which tells us of the wonders of your unseen power. In baptism, we use the gift of water, which you have made a rich symbol of the grace you give us in this sacrament. At the very dawn of creation, your spirit breathed on the waters, making them the wellsprings of all holiness. Wellsprings, therefore, they give life. The waters of the great flood, you made a sign of the waters of baptism, that make an end of sin and a new beginning of goodness. When we look back at the flood, the flood wiped evil away and kept goodness on the ark. Through the waters of the Red Sea, you led Israel out of slavery to be an image of God's holy people, set free yet again from sin by baptism. In the waters of the Jordan, your son was baptized by John and anointed with the Holy Spirit. Your son willed that water and blood should flow from his side as he hung upon the cross. We're just going through and chronologically listing why water is important and turns away from sin and leads us to life. After his resurrection, he told the disciples, go out and teach all nations, not the ones that are convenient, not the ones that like us, not just our friends, but all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, not creator, redeemer, sanctifier, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, look now with love upon your church, which he always does anyways, and unseal for her the, ba- the fountain of baptism. The reason this is normally done at the Easter Vigil and most churches that don't have a baptismal font like we do, it's new water every time. So you're unsealing it. You're making it now able to be used for the sacrament of baptism. Father, look now upon, uh, with love upon your church and unseal for her the fountain of baptism. By the power of the Spirit, give to the water of this font the grace of your Son. Grace, unmerited gift, blessing. You created man in your own likeness. Cleanse him from sin in a new birth to innocence by water and the Spirit. Then we ask you with the, we ask you, Father, with your Son, 
to send the Holy Spirit, again, because we're invoking the Trinity, upon the water of this fountain. At that point, I actually put my hand in the water. May all who are buried with Christ in the death of baptism rise also with him to newness of life. We ask this through Christ our Lord. If that seems like a really long, drawn-out, boring prayer, but we hear the history of salvation turning away from sin through water and baptism so that we can die to sin and rise to newness of life with baptism. After that, we then go to what is it that this faith is that we are calling our children to take on? Because with the sacrament of baptism, there are both rights and responsibilities put then on the baptized. And that's when mom, dad, godparent, and godparents profess the faith. Now, there's been a lot of consternation may be the best word for this, um, or misinformation about who can be a godparent. Canon law actually spells it out for us. Must be baptized. Must be confirmed. Over the age of 13, cannot be father or mother. And in good standing, practicing the faith. That is who a godparent is in the church is. Now, the interesting thing is, when we look at the ritual books, the word godparent is used. When we look at the actual law and the catechism, you will never see the word godparent. You'll see the word sponsor. Or as some churches will say in your baptism certificate, Christian witness. You notice that sometimes? Because our society has... Anytime something good the church brings, the society wants to have part of it, but just the parts they like. So like Ash Wednesday was really weird for a lot of non-Catholics for a long time because if you were a Catholic and you went to, went to Mass on Ash Wednesday, how many times did you have someone 20, 30 years ago come to you and say, hey, you got something on your forehead there. Hey, you got to go wash your face. No, no, this is we're cool. Nowadays in Oklahoma City, there are non-denominational churches that have, I kid you not, Drive up, drive through ashes on Ash Wednesday. Like you drive up like you go to Wendy's. And it's like, but you're missing the point. You're missing the point. <laughs> yes, you may have the, the, the mark on your head, but you're missing what it's about. And it's the same way many times in our faith. We aren't paying attention to what it's about. And so, do we reject Satan? Yes. And all of his works? Yes. And all of his empty promises? Yes. And all of his evil show? Yes. Pretty much what we're doing is we are professing the creed, which is, if you want to know the nitty-gritty of what we as Catholics believe, it's the creed. If you want details, it's in here. In fact, the first third of this book, actually, it's like the first half of the book, is breaking down the creed. That's basically what we've done in this class up until now. <laughs> I fooled you. I made you learn the catechism in order. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And Jesus Christ is only begotten Son. I can't go through it without looking at it because I've got the old version, the new version, and the Grover version. Because my dad, again, recovering um, Protestant, always added things in to, this, to, to, to the point of today <clears throat> when we do our family rosary, th 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 there's a line that's not in the creed that dad always added that I didn't know wasn't in the creed that I, to this day, when we do the family rosary, I will rush in there because nobody else says it. 
can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but we go through and we profess our faith, and that's what I invite everybody to do it. Why? Because it's not just mom and dad, not just godparents that are professing this faith. We, as the community of faith, are professing that faith. This is our faith. This is the faith of the church. We are proud to profess it in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are we proud to profess our faith? Do we know our faith well enough to profess it? Do we know our faith well enough to answer simple questions? If not, that's why I'm having these classes. Because I'm hoping we can go a little more deep. And it's not just going to be for this year. My hope is that we can have these classes every year. That we can continue to grow and continue to nurture our faith and our understanding of who we are as Catholics. And at that point, after we've gone through and blessed the water, after we've gone through and professed our faith, I ask again, is it your will that your child should be baptized in the faith of the church which we have all professed with you? And at that point, mom and dad say, it is awesome. At that point, mom and dad bring child over. It's really awkward up here because I'm short and I'm, I'm a righty, but I have to do it from the left-hand side because our camera that's up there if I do it from the right-hand side, you can't see anything if you're live streaming. And if I do it from the right-hand side, I block everybody's view, which then everybody gets mad for pictures. So I go from the left-hand side, which is really awkward. But at that point, I pick up the little shell that we have. So-and-so, I use the name that you have given me to give to them. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We baptize not by immersion, up by sprinkling. Baptizing by immersion or sprinkling are both acceptable. In fact, it was interesting to me that we have a full font that is meant to be an immersion font that has never been used as an immersion font. It's like, what? Oh, has it? Okay, I take it back. We're getting handrails eventually and gates and, huh? Suck it up. <laughs> it's cold. So is sin. Sin brings you coldness of heart. Now, um, but at that time, we, we had the baptism, and normally the, the, you would walk down, and normally in a baptismal font like this, it would have three stairs down and three stairs up. You die to sin, and you rise in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's beautiful in that way, right? Again, everything that we do has symbolism and has meaning behind it. We just many times don't realize it because we are so distracted by everything around us, or our kids screaming, that we don't know what's going on. Got to sweep a little bit. The next thing is we are clothed with the white garment. Again, the white-robed army of martyrs that we hear about in the book of Revelation. We become members of that white-robed army, that we are sinless at that moment. Our sins have been forgiven. That is part of the cleansing of water, dying to sin. Immediately after receiving the white garment, I did this in the wrong word, no I didn't. Uh, yeah, after the white uh, garment, then we, I'm missing a page here. Take it back. Before the white garment, we anoint with the coolest, amazing smell in the world, the sacred chrism, which is pretty much cooking oil with perfume that's blessed every year at the chrism mass. And with the sacred chrism, we then bless the top of the head with that. It's not meant to be a cross. It's not meant to be any symbol, but like 
There are some priests that will like go with a gulp of it and just, and it's just awesome. I won't do that because it's messy. But we, we anoint and then clothe them with the white garment. And then we have the um, baptismal candle receive the light of Christ. Then there's um, also an option called the ephetha, or the prayer over the ears and the mouth. It's become an option in the, the United States. Most priests don't do it because of the verbiage that's in it. Um, I don't do it because I was never really taught to do it, as far as like I've never really seen it. Um, but it says, The Lord Jesus made the deaf hear and the dumb speak. May he soon touch your ears to receive his word and your mouth to proclaim his faith to the praise and glory of God the Father. I've had some people with baptism say, we specifically want you to do the ephetha. Some specifically, we don't. So, so if a child was born with um, deafness or um, mute, they will actually specifically sometimes ask you to or not to do this prayer. And I do what, more or less what the family asks as long as it's in, the, in that order. And then you have put on Christ and him you've been baptized. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. At every other church I've ever been at, the baptismal font is up here. So normally at that time, I play Rafiki. You know, you know Rafiki from The Lion King? St. Matthews, I present to you our newest born Catholic. But if they're like big kids, it's like, yeah, you got to get yourself up there. Now at that point, I just kind of like, yay! And we get them baptized. Now there's a whole lot more that we can talk about with baptism, why we use the words we do, why we do the different things. But that was 55 minutes. And now we're just going through the basics of um, the uh, liturgy itself. So with about five minutes left, what questions may you have about baptism? Yeah. That's fine. Any questions? We do not believe in limbo. Yes. Uh, do we, as the church, still believe in limbo? Never have, never will. Never has existed. Limbo is not a place. Limbo is not a state of existence. It was thought up by some French theologians, and sometimes when people think up things, they just kind of take it and run with it. Limbo is not real. Limbo has never existed. Um, we talk, though, about when Christ descended after he died. He descends to the dead, Sheol, the bosom of Abraham. Some people at that point would use the word limbo. Um, or the valley of the dead, or to hell. Those are really the translations of the place that Jesus descended to. Why did he descend there? Because the gates of heaven had been locked from the time that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. He descended to take all of those who were waiting to purgatory or heaven at that moment. So limbo, yeah, limbo has never been a thing. Um, one of the questions that I get asked a lot, um, canon law... Justice tempered with mercy. That is kind of my practice that I, that I kind of go through with everything. If a child is not baptized and they die, what happens? Well, let's look at the gospel. Let's look at the teaching of God. God is love. God never creates anything that he doesn't have a purpose for. If God is love, why would he create something good they did not have the opportunity to be baptized and then not welcome it to eternity. That's my answer. If a child does not have the ability to be baptized, 
due to no fault of its own, before the state, before they've reached the um, age of reason, I personally believe they're in heaven. If, if a child is aborted, if a mother has a miscarriage, child's in heaven. Now, there's no official doctrinal thing that says, what it says is, there is no way that we know outside of baptism and Christ for us to reach heaven. But the church relies on the grace and mercy of God. God is not bound to our rules. These are just the rules that God has given to us. So we dwell in mercy. So I've done I did that um, funeral a couple weeks ago for the 15-day-old. Talked to mom and grandma. It's like, I have nothing but faith that that child is in heaven. Um, when I talk to um, parents that are bereaved because they've had a miscarriage or because years after they, they've had an abortion, they finally realize what they did, um, they've, they've killed a child, I said, your child's in heaven. Pray for their intercession. When we are grieving the loss of the dead, the dead, if they are righteous, are in heaven. We as Catholics, we should know this this week with All Saints Day and All Souls Day, we are called to pray for the faithful departed to pray for us. That when we die and God willing, we make it to heaven, our job at that point is to pray for those that are still here to make it to where we plan to be. I think we're just about done with time, so let's end with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give praise and thanksgiving to you for the gift of baptism, for the gift of newness of life, for the gift of your Son. Remind us all of our baptisms, or for those who are seeking baptism, continue to enkindle in us that fire of faith that we may receive you worthily, that as we enter the church and leave the church, when we dip our fingers in that holy water and bless ourselves in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we are reminded of whose we are. That we are claimed for you, your Son, and your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. The Lord be with you. And Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'll see you guys next week.